This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Welcome to the Heartland Institute's Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy. Europe is much farther down the rabbit hole of climate alarm than the United States is, and the EU, if not all its member countries equally, embraced Paris Climate Agreement's emission commitments and net zero goals more fervently than the U.S. has so far. The Netherlands' climate goals have come increasingly at the expense of farmers and repeated rounds of goals and proposed restrictions to end farming as they know it, basically. Despite that country providing a large portion of the EU's meat, dairy, and other food products, uh, agriculture is under assault. This sparked riots, protests, and ultimately the birth of a successful political party to fight this war on agriculture. To discuss the dangerous tack the EU in general and the Netherlands in particular took, which serves perhaps as a preview of what is coming to the United States soon, I'm pleased to have as a guest today Sid Lucasen, Policy Advisor for the ECR Group in the European Parliament from 2019 to 2021, a City Councillor from 2010 to 2018 in Duiven, Netherlands, and he has been a guest speaker at the European Parliament, the Dutch National Parliament, and several universities. Sid, thanks for being with us. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I uh, obtained my PhD in... Uh political philosophy in uh, 2017, and indeed I've been active as a policy analyst. I decided to leave academia because academia was taken over by cultural Marxists. So I realized if I want to do my policy research, I'll do that in cooperation with politicians because they have think tanks and they also have budgets for their researches. So that's how I got into this angle. That's how I, I ended up studying environment and many other issues. And I'm very honored to be part of your podcast today. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. You sort of foresaw my first question, so we'll move along. But I would say it's nice. Uh, I didn't realize that your degree was in political philosophy. That, of course, is my uh, my PhD as well, applied philosophy, uh, specialized in environmental ethics. So uh, it's two philosophers on at once. What do you know? And they say we can't. Uh, we're 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 no good for anything. Uh, you know, <laughs> well, let's counting podcast. Yeah. Uh, Sid, before we discuss Europe's climate missteps and how it's played out in the Netherlands, well, you've, you've already given us a little bit of background. So, but how did you come to focus on energy and climate as part of your uh, work with the European Parliament? I mean, you could have uh, done healthcare policy, I suspect, or or uh, international relations. How, how did uh, that become a particular focus? Well, that's so interesting you mentioned that because healthcare issues are still much a part of the national national. Uh, portfolio, so to say. So uh, the EU is made up from member states, and they're not as far as the integration process as, say, the states of the United States. So, of course, the United States has the, the states, but they have uh, less, uh, more, more or less less autonomy still than the member states of the EU. So what we're doing is basically a constant uh, battle for how much um, sovereignty and autonomy we still want to keep as member states versus how much do we want to put into the pot of power of collective EU power and in that sense healthcare is still very much uh, still nationalized which also has its own problems because how do you deal with, with immigration if you on the one hand want to have this open market where the guest workers from Poland can come to the Netherlands while on the other hand 
whatever, taxes and so on, and you have your own collective healthcare benefit system. So the EU is still struggling with that. But the reason I got into uh, more the environmental angle is um, purely chance, actually, because I started out with the Alde Group back in 2012, and I was recruited um, to serve as part of the ITER, Industrial uh, Innovation Research Technology. Uh, that's the area that the community ITER specializes in. And it kind of branched out from there. So how, what is the, uh, you said you're an advisor to the ECR group. What is that? Yeah, I was. Uh, currently, I'm, I'm now more focused again on the politics of the province and the politics of the city of the Arnhem, uh, which is the capital of province of Gelderland of Netherlands. Yeah. Um, but I was uh, part of the ECR group. That was from 2019 uh, to mid-2021, uh, when there was an internal uh, political split-off, and then they basically just sacrificed me as a pawn on the board, sadly. I had nothing to do, but it was an internal political conflict. And people got laid off in a sort of revenge plot, and that's uh, that's how I lost my uh, my job there. It's really sad how all that happened. Well, what did ECR stand for, though? We, we in the Europe U.S. don't know. Sorry. And reformers. So I, I'll, I'll tell history of the ECR group. It's it's probably interesting also for the American audience to know a bit more about that. Because in the EU, we have several big political families. So in, let's say, the United States, you have like the Democrats and the Republicans, and you basically, and then you have libertarians or so. But it's basically two flavors, and then there's some mini flavors here and there. But in Europe, there's a few big alliances. So there's the Greeks, there's the Socialists and Democrats, there's the Liberals, and the Christian Democrats, and then they have, a and then there's a nationalist populist group, but they also have sort of a right-wing conservative group. Is ECR? It was supposedly made up first from conservative Brits and basically anti-communist Poles. Those were the two big groups that merged together to form the European Conservatives and Reformers. However, what happened after the Brexit, when the Brits voted to leave the EU, then one of the two big groups left the group, and so the Polish group became completely dominant. And you had a lot of smaller groups left. So basically small political parties from here and there for like one or two seats from Germany, two or three seats from the Netherlands. And so it goes. So these smaller parties seek to ally with the ECR because they don't want to be associated with, let's say, with, say Marine Le Pen from the Front National or Flans Belang or Geert Wilders, PVV, Freedom Party and so on. So they kind of seek like, yeah, some... some so virtue ethical right-wingers that they join, which is pretty much ECR, pretty much from a religious conservative perspective. So it's much against abortion and, and so on. That's basically and against LGBTQ, and it's a bit more, bit more like that. Whereas if you go to the hard right, which is more like a, the right of the ECR, more like the, the more populist right, and the way they are more focused on the problems of Islam and immigration in the big cities. Mm -hmm. So. But that's not a big problem in Eastern Europe. So that's that's another that's what's a problem of European politics. That that's not what I just mentioned. Not a problem for Eastern Europeans because they lived under the Iron Curtain, and so they had economical Marxism and not culture Marxism. They didn't have all these immigration bullshit, and as a result of that, their social structure is much different. So the problem of Western Europe is not the problem of Eastern Europe. So even if you, as a Western European right-wing party, join this Eastern European religious alliance, it doesn't mean that. The talk of the talk, it will be about your your problems. They That's what different. I. They, I the, the east and the west have faced different different issues and different concerns. Yes, and if you are forced 
to, to be part of a block that's completely centered around Eastern European uh, issues, then it's very hard to get to get your vote and your ideas out. So, so if the West is suffering with the farmer farmer problems, mm. well, that's not a problem for the East. That's a thing, and because of course Dutch European farmers very much advanced in terms of environmental friendliness, in terms of all sorts of things. They're very progressive in a way. Mm. So because they're so advanced and so economically viable. They're also under harder scrutiny from the EU than from uh, member states that are still developing their agricultural sectors. So the EU frame is kind of thinking, okay, the Netherlands is like the, the best boy in the class, always trying to do right and make farmers both economically productive and environmentally friendly. But because it's like the, the issue is here that the strongest shoulders must bear the highest burdens. That's the idea here. Whereas if money just goes and flows into Eastern Europe and so, they're not so critical of that because they think, well, we're already happy to have them on our side and at least they're not part of the Soviet unions anymore. Mm. It feels kind of unfair that on the one hand, the EU taxes so hard our agricultural sector. and At the same time, we have to pay so much money to the EU and so much of it goes to, yeah, uh, the agriculture and other member states that directly competes with ours. Let's. Um, so, how is the EU undermining national sovereignty and representative democracy, and what climate policies have resulted? Well, it's. I suppose the discussion is also known from the United States uh, when you say, "Well, what if there is a competence? Should this competence be executed at a member state level?" or federal level or national level or whatever, how, how you guys call it, you would call it level of member state. Um, so then you can say, well, if all this stuff is done in Brussels or if all this stuff is done in Washington, it takes away from our democratic uh, sovereignty and our democratic accountability. I guess you can run that, but here's the thing that you then have suddenly member states that speak completely different languages, have completely different histories, and that makes it a bit more estranging for the common citizen, so to say, when dealing with EU bureaucrats. But a big problem here is that the European Commission is not directly elected by anyone. The Europeans elect the European Parliament, but the European Parliament is only an advisory body. It, it doesn't have that much power in a way the minister of the council of ministers has power and the european commission has power but the european commission is basically built on the french style of running a bureaucracy which is very centralized very technocratic and it doesn't really fit into the dna of many european member states that have a very different uh, genealogy so to say different origins and um, that makes it very hard for Euro european uh, nations to abide under the European Commission because the European commissioners have so much power legislative and they have an, they have an army of, of, of the most skilled, highly educated bureaucrats in Europe we have to offer, but they face almost no democratic scrutiny as the European Parliament has almost no power. And yeah, it's just a deal between different member states who becomes a European commissioner. So the, the, the bureaucratic elite at the commission basically become the European Union as opposed to the Parliament. Exactly. Yes, yes. And it's just it's just member states discussions. For instance, Macron, was, when the Brits left, it created a power vacuum, which basically the French took up. 
So then you had Macron decide that it's going to be Ursula from the Leyen, it's going to be the new commissioner, for instance, with a bit of support from the Germans. That's how they pushed that through. And for instance, as, as a Dutch citizen, you vote for parties in a national election, but then who becomes the government is again, it's a sort of intransparent deal between the winning parties. So you vote for parties, parties get an X amount of seats, and then with an X amount of seats, they make negotiations about who's becoming the majority government and who's going to become the minority opposition. You don't directly vote for that right. as a citizen. But then, because you have no real influence on who's going to become the, the you can you can you have influence on who becomes the biggest party, but it doesn't automatically mean that the biggest party also becomes the governing party because it can create a majority from other parties as well. And then you have absolutely no power. Like who becomes the minister or who becomes the head of government and so on? We don't have a president. We have a premier, a prime minister under monarch. So the voter has no real power over that. And if then these elites discuss with the EU and decide who becomes the next commissioner at the transnational level, then you have even less power over that. That's how we are governed in Europe. And it's very hard to put back. So, and and what climate policies have resulted from all this? Well, uh, FARC to form uh, policy, um, of course, zero emissions policy, crazy stuff is going to happen. Uh, they want to make the harbor of Rotterdam climate neutral. Uh, they strive to do that already in 2030. And... Uh, at maximum, it has to be accomplished in 2050, even though I, I knew the director of the Harbour of Rotterdam, he said it's technically impossible to, to do that zero emissions policy, but feels committed to it. So, yeah, and I tell him, OK, if you know it's impossible, then then you have to give your job back to the Hague and say, hey, why don't you push back? But no, he says, I have to do this because else the EU will step in and will take over and, uh, and, and and other than he that he sincerely believes of course in the, the climate making the seas untravelable. Uh, yeah i mean I, I guess i'm a little confused um i understand why it would be impossible for the harbor of rotterdam to be uh climate neutral <laughs> ships run on diesel and bunker fuel i know uh electricity powers the the cranes and things like that uh, what i don't and, and I understand why he would say, because he's a he wants to keep his job, why he would say, well, yeah, it's impossible, but I'm going to do my best. Um, but I don't understand how the EU could take over. I mean, the EU has no standing army in itself. They can't come, march in and say, we now run the harbor of, of, yeah. of Rotterdam. How does that work? That's a good, fair point. But they are building on, they're working on the standing army as we speak. Because <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I wrote a book, The Grip on the Public Opinion, and one chapter is devoted to how the EU is building their own army. And uh, this is very effective, actually, because if you have an, if you have an army uh, in the United States, then what's happening, and this is very relevant also, because we had an issue where a politician said that in the most extreme situations, farmers should be able to defend their own lands against a tyrannical government. And right. guess what? This politician is now being prosecuted by the state. Oh, wow. Uh, which goes again exactly against the the just, natural law. Just for order. saying it, just for saying it, he's being prosecuted. I should speak more about that soon, actually. Yeah. But the whole thing about farmers and starvation and slavery and and, and food and malnutrition, it's it's all just a small point in in, in a much bigger battle in a gotcha. way. But it, it's a small point, but it is a, a point that's gotten some uh, attention. And so how have the EU's climate policies played out in the Netherlands, particularly with regard to farmers? And uh, what was the backlash? Well, there's two ways of going on about this. The first one is 
nitrogen and emissions, and the other one is CO2 emissions. And this, going back to the Harbor Rotterdam guy, he literally said, well, I have my techniques to reduce my CO2 emissions, but I cannot employ these techniques because if I do, I will increase my nitrogen deposit and I'm not legally allowed. That's what he literally said. So there we go. These, these ideologies contradict each other and they are working on an, in a reality of contradictions, but they don't care. They just ignore the practical reality because they are ideologically driven, because they really believe that we live in an end time, that there's an eschatology of climate going on, and that the seas will become so crazy that it becomes impossible to do any naval transport. They but, genuinely believe that. Yeah, but wait, uh, I want to get back to the farmers, because you got to remember, we, we're not a European audience. We're an American audience. and Not everyone's going to know the kinds of policies they try to impose on farmers and what the impact uh, would be. I mean, that they're actually trying to force farmers out of farming, buy them out, say they can't yeah. be farmers. So could, tell us a little bit about the details here. Not, not Really horrible. There's farmers hanging themselves because their grandfather has been farmer and their fathers have been farmer and their mothers and all they know is farming and connected to the... And they see no way out other than just to kill themselves at this point because the government has become so hostile against them. And others are just tempted to take the money and, 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 and quit because, yeah, if you have the choice between either having to face a million regulations that kill you by death by a thousand cuts or you get at least a bit of money from the government for your land, then you're tempted to, to take it. But it's, it's, of course, very sad because because... Even if you go into the whole discussion, well, it's, it's, if a farmer has his own free will to be bullied out of his job and take the money, well, okay, but there's a thing such as food, food security. In the Netherlands in the Second World War, we had uh, we were caught up between the Allies and the Axis powers, so basically between the Americans and Canadians versus the Germans. And what happened is that uh, the supply lines of food broke down. And we learned a lesson because people were absolutely starved to death and, and the cities were not in any control of yeah, you know how it is. Uh, a lawyer, you can probably last a few months without. But a farmer, you need three times per day because three times per day you're going to eat. If you don't have a farmer, you're not going to have any butcher because you're not going to have cattle. Eh? You're not going to have mm. a potato stand because you don't have potatoes. You're not going to eat any french fries. Because you need the farmer for basically anything. And people realize that. And people traveled by foot. They've traveled tens and tens of kilometers just to trade their own jewelries for a few rotten potatoes, because that's how bad it got in the Second World War. And the Netherlands learned from that. And after that, we invested very strongly into creating a very productive, internationally competitive agricultural sector. And it's become part of people's identities. Their whole family lineage is farming. And now the government has turned against that and really tries to destroy that actively. But it doesn't come out of nowhere. And the EU does play a big part on it. But of course, it's also the NGOs. It's the it's the animal rights lobby. Yeah? So... You have to understand that a million media, and they have been for the past decades, have been trying to indoctrinate people that the farmers, in essence, torture animals, hate animals, uh, yeah, make the and the life of animals miserable. That their that their uh, uh, use of fertilizers poisoning people and and all the things, and despite the fact that the Netherlands is, to some extent, the breadbasket of Europe, right? Yes, that's absolutely true. And so, so they pass laws trying to restrict nitrogen emissions, among other things. I will tell you a bit about that yeah, because I'm that's just... because 
what happened is that the EU says, okay, we need Natura 2000 areas. And a Natura 2000 area is a very specific area that's going to say it needs to be protected. Um, so some countries are quite pragmatic in this because the EU doesn't have the power to dictate this or that should be a, a, a Natura 2000 area. It just says that every country should designate a few of these areas. So the French have been very pragmatic. They designated some areas where nothing much is happening. But the Netherlands, of course, with their Protestant work ethic, uh, their obedience to the structures of powers, they wanted to be the best boy in the class again. And so they made very, very uh, complex uh, systems of Natura 2000 that they designated as, as these historical, uh, naturally unique ecosystems that need to be protected legally enshrined as strongly as a Serengeti. That's how it is. So as a result of that, because on the one hand, you have an extremely densely populated country. People might not know this, but Netherlands is one of the most densely populated countries in the world. It's it's insane. It's where it's 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 absolutely super super densely populated. And on the one hand, we are uh, a giant in terms of agriculture. So that means that we have an extreme high production on the amount of land that we have. That we have intensified how much resources we can make from this agriculture. That they're very efficient in that. But if you're then on top of that going to designate all sorts of areas, especially environmentally sacred areas that cannot be touched, yeah, then you're going to have a big problem, you see, because we are very densely populated and we have a very big agricultural sector. But then on top of that, we're going to make lands too holy to mess with or to accept any change in the ecosystem. But truth be told, a lot of this land is, uh, let's say, heath, and you need a lot of sheep to to bite the grass down because, of course, in the natural cycle of events, what's going to happen is that small plants become trees and trees become forests. So you need a lot of sheep to keep all the grass really short so that not all these plants can shoot up from it and that it cannot go into the second phase of the ecology. But if you keep, if you take away all these sheep, yeah, then, of course, uh, the, the land is going to change. But they say, hey, wait a minute, this land is changing because of a result in nitrogen emissions. That means that all the industries have to cut down on nitrogen emissions. And this is legally enshrined because the EU made these Natura 2000 areas so holy and, and gold-plated with all the bureaucratic laws. And that means that farmers are now really in a stranglehold and they cannot expand their businesses anymore. That's what it really means. It's not, but it's not just they can't expand. It's it's that they are actively dis encouraging them to get out of farming. To to they're 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 buying up the land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're telling the farmers, not only will you not farm this land, uh, but you can't go anywhere else and farm either. So I mean, they can't control them if they go to the U.S. or South America or something like that. But they can't go anywhere else in the U.N. and become a farmer if they take these payments, right? Yep, and the thing about that is also, as I said, of course, farmer is existentially important because we need a farmer three times per day. But it's all just a blip on, on, on a much larger map, on a much larger ideological conflict. Mm -hmm. Because why does the government suddenly want to destroy uh, the farmers and take their land? Well, on, it, of course, it has to do with the idea, cut down on emissions, whether CO2 or, or whether nitrogen. So instead, we're going to have the bug farms that are more protein intensive and you have less energy loss and you can be more efficient if we all just eat, eat, eat plankton and insects and, 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 and food made by Bill Gates and artificial uh, flesh factories and so on. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. That's the except, first place. But on top, there's the fascination with trans, uh, yeah, green energy, mm -hmm. renewable energy. 
So there need to be windmill farms and solar panels on all these lands. And of course, the migration policy. Yeah? Because the immigration is going to the point that they need to build more refugee centers everywhere. And that's where this land comes in useful for because it's... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but but if it's a refugee farm, then it's not nature either. And if you have refugees, you've got to feed more people. Yeah. And if you put right. solar panels and wind turbines on top of land, it's also not nature. So it's it's a it's a but, a series but, of contradictions that don't that don't play that out. With logical analysis, to a left wing ideological bureaucrat, makes any difference because the right <laughs> has been that for the past fifty years, and no one's ever succeeded because. They only stick to their own ideological points when they want to destroy you. But when they want to push their own agenda, then suddenly they can be very flexible. And it's really yeah. much or will double think. It's, That's how it, it is. It's, it's double think. It's, it's also what uh, uh, Oscar Wilde said. Consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. The European bureaucrats are above consistency, evidently. Exactly. If you're really an environmentalist, well, then you want to be pro-nuclear energy. And if you really want to be an environmentalist, then you're against mass immigration. But they're not. They think that these ideas being anti-nuclear and being pro-mass immigration are compatible with their pro-environmentalism and their pro-climate. But all these windmills shred thousands of birds every day. And it's bad for bats and it's bad for so many things in the ecosystem. But then suddenly they flip on a button and they just compartmentalize this objection and put their ideology above it. So we as a right, we have to really emancipate beyond arguments. We have to emancipate beyond logos if we want to win this battle. Well, you know, the bug farms, I, I can't speak to the energy used at bug farms, but I do know that the artificial meat industry is very, very energy intensive and in fact takes more energy to produce a, a pound of artificial meat than it does a pound of beef. So uh, when, when, uh, when, when they've cashed it out, so that's not going to help it's emissions the same at all. Them again, because this guy literally said, well, I don't have space because people are building everywhere because the government forces us to build more and more houses close to the, uh, to the river because mm. of the population pressure and the migration and so on. Well, the migration kind of tried to hover around, but it was obvious. But then he comes to the point, where I can build windmills, but these windmills take so much more space per per unit of energy that they produce than I would ever have it from fossil fuels. So he says from one single drop of fossil fuel, I can have much more energy if I would have to translate this space to the amount of green renewable sources. So yeah. actually, I don't have the space to switch to green renewable sources. That's what they literally said. Hmm. And said yourself, the boats run on diesel. They don't run on, on whatever, well, maybe on hydrogen, but then he gets into problems that creating nitrogen. So I literally told him, okay, if you run into the practical impossibility of the task you've committed to, then go back to the politicians and tell them that what they want is impossible and at least stand up. Because I knew this guy because 10 years ago, I ran in a campaign with him for the Alder Group when he for yeah essentially for capitalism in a way that jobs economic growth job security economical opportunities we were still competing for that and he used that platform to obtain this job as director of the harbor of rotterdam and now he's ideologically committed to climate ideology it's uh, it's yeah it, uh, it's it's really like you, he knows what he's doing is impossible yeah. and yet he's so so I know this economy is going down the drain because 30% of Dutch economy is, is is harbor of Rotterdam and everything attached to it, everything connected. Because the Germans need the Netherlands to get to the sea. 
So if you order something from Alibaba or China or whatever, it needs to come to the port of Rotterdam to reach the home of the consumer. And we are not producing anymore because if we produce, it of course taxes the environment, it emits CO2. So instead we are burdening ourselves with regulations that in fact reduce our productivity. So all this productivity is pushed to countries like Algeria, China, wherever, where they have completely different policies. So we're making economically dependent. What we have left in Europe is basically tourism and services. And we need to import it because we're not producing it. But at the same time, we are destroying this harbor of Rotterdam. So that means that we can't import it anymore either. Well, that explains to me why uh, when when the the farmers last year, when they revolted against these policies, um, the harbor actually, uh, the ships in the harbor actually uh, supported them and stopped, stopped operating for a while. They said, no, we're not going to ship. We're going to support the farmers. And that, that created a backlash in your country. You a whole new party was born. Tell us about that, its effectiveness. Okay, you mean the BBB, the Boerburgerbeweging? Uh, uh, the party existed for a little while longer than that, but it was um, the Farmers and Citizens Alliance, it's called the Boerburgerbeweging. However, the government fell, and uh, many things were declared as controversial. However, one law, which is the obliged transportation of immigrants, where then the government can dictate where the immigrants will be located. So the government can force the municipality to accept the immigrants. The BBB, the Boerburgerbeweging, voted in the Senate against declaring this law as controversial. So this means that now we're going to go into the elections and thanks to the BBB, the Dutch citizens cannot speak their opinion about whether or not they want to have this forced immigration policy. So that already gives you an impression where this BBB really stands because half of it is made up from previous CDA people, which is a Christian Democratic Appel which is in essence Christian Democrats. But this party has completely been destroyed because there's not much Christianity left. And the little bit of Christianity that is left is divided between uh, different parties now. So the base of the CDA has crumbled and therefore the politicians seek a new platform. And they have migrated from the CDA to the BBB. Um, so basically old, old wine and new sacks for the most part. Um, so the farmer party is not protecting the farmers is what you're saying. Well, not as well as it could, because they also vote for these dubious deals where farmers first get bullied by the government, and then they get held out a small stack of cash. So, hey, take take these few gold coins and uh, then sell your farm and just be done with all the problems. Wouldn't it be so much easier for you just to take this money than to deal with more and more hostility and more and more international competition and more and more regulation? And can you even motivate your own children to continue your job and continue your lineage as a farmer. And the baby bay is then saying, well, if that's the farmer's free choice, then they should at least have the option to, which completely ignores, of course, the whole institutional hostility versus farming as a profession. And that's my issue with that. And not only that, but I, as a consumer, I want food safety. I don't want this stuff that I described from the Boer Holodomor uh, from the Second World War to happen again. So I, as a consumer, I want there to be a lot of farmers. I want to make sure there's a lot of food supply. You know, a quote by Stalin is, he who controls where and when the food comes into the city, he is the one who controls the city. So I, even I'm, okay, my grandfather, he was a, he was a farmer, but I'm not a farmer, but I still want there to be a lot of farmers because oh. I want the food to be accessible to the people, both for purpose of democratic power, that they can't starve us, 
but also for food security because the corona crisis made clear how dependent we actually are on foreign countries already in the Netherlands. And I really hope that the corona crisis made clear how important it is that you are the master of your own national production, whether that is whether that is machines to, to re respirators for people, for, for, for intensive care equipment, or whether that's food and food production, that you should be autonomous in such vital things. And the opposite is happening. And all this is put under more and more bureaucratic pressure. Um, and that means that my people are facing starvation and slavery. And the people who buy our produce around the world will be devastated by this. EU tyrants and their toadies in The Hague are attacking our food supply and they're using the lies and the discourse of the climate change to do it. Well, we're running, we're, we're, we're running out of time here. But I want to end with just a couple of questions. Uh, I'm going to combine them into one. Uh, this is sort of the big picture point. I always ask people if you like, if there's one thing you'd like our listeners to take away, what the discussion be. But um, it's important. I, the thing that I'd like to direct you to, to to address is so there has been at least some backlash in the Netherlands. It did create a party. Um, it's not doing maybe everything it could do, but there's also a growing backlash in Europe. Uh, industries are walking away. <laughs> Germany's opening coal plants and and taking over villages to mine coal. Uh, some countries are starting to talk about nuclear again. So w ultimately, how do you think all this would play out? What lessons or warnings do you have that our audience can take away concerning how climate policies might play out in the U.S. and where well, Europe might ultimately wind up? That's a good point to bring in Germany into this because uh, Germany is screwed because they need Russian oil in a way, not just for the pure energy burn, but also because they process this oil into synthetic stuff that they use for their production. And Germany is really the production house of Europe. And even if they're going to say, okay, oops, we made a mistake. We're going to use this, this Russian fuel again. Again, they just can't because the line is now cut and it goes so deep into the ground that it's again... Uh, going into permafrost. So it will take years to, even if they change their mind and they want to import the Russian fuel again to, to get it up and running. So that means that they're facing a huge spike in energy costs. Uh, and it will make uh, German production not competitive anymore. And the problem of that is that the entirety of Europe is basically built around exporting German produce. Uh, so it's going to be a huge catastrophe for the EU. But keep in mind that this is not just some bureaucrat creating a policy. This is done through day-to-day -day indoctrination from the media. This is the true power and, and portent of cultural Marxism is that, that you control the news, the media, that you have your own ideology and drop by drop into every communication from schools to journalism to everything. And that's what made people so panicked about nuclear power. Or, so when this tsunami happened in Japan, where this uh, the reactors of the, the Fukushima and so on, Germans panicked. And the Green Power, the Green Party, got a huge spike in popularity and power. And then Germany suddenly declared, okay, we're going to completely steer away from nuclear power. We're going to shut down nuclear power. Why? Because cultural Marxists had programmed the mind to be anti-nuclear. And that's what laid the basis for their, for their idiocy of not going nuclear, not having access to Russian fuel anymore, and being dependent now basically on solar panels, and windmills that's all delivered by 
African kids working under communist Chinese overseers, digging it out of, of the ground somewhere in Africa, where we as Europe have absolutely no power over what's happening there. We're making ourselves completely dependent on all that foreign foreign influence. It's why? Because ultimately, because of indoctrination by culture Marxists, that's what's happening. We, our policymakers can no longer create any rational future perspective. And as I explained in the beginning, our democratic systems are set up in such a way to be so technocratic that we cannot really gain a direct democratic control over what the EU is doing again. Well, that is a warning for the U.S. because you look around at our education system and the battles that are going on in our schools today uh, between progressives and uh, people who want uh, more traditional educations that focuses on actual <laughs> reading, writing, arithmetic, the the core competencies, uh, and how it plays out in technocracies and bureaucracy, the growth of the bureaucratic state. We certainly see that here. So let's let's hope. <laughs> and I say let's by by let's I mean me and my uh, uh, colleagues and brethren and and uh, neighbors here in the U.S. Let's hope that we don't go as far down the path before we turn around as Europe has. <sighs> You've you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, uh, to some extent, it's a bit depressing. Um, <laughs> but Sid, it's been good to speak with you. I hope that we can do it again soon. In the meantime, I want to thank you for coming on the show on behalf of myself and our listeners. Thank you also very much for your questions, your patience with me. And I, it was an honor to be here and to uh, to discuss these important topics. Uh, it, well, like I said, we'll get, hopefully we'll get you back on again. Maybe you can even write something for us. In the meantime... It- uh, listeners, thanks for checking in on us today. Please check Heartland's website as we continue to follow the twists and turns of European climate and energy policies because they do, in fact, impact the United States. Also, if you're not already receiving these podcasts on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. You might also jump on our Climate Change Roundtable every Friday on your favorite social media streaming service where Anthony Watts, Linnea Lucan, myself, and almost weekly guests discuss the climate topic of the week, complete with taking questions from viewers. Thanks. Take care. Bye.